0: Thank you for downloading this Downtown Hope Sermon Podcast. We're a faith-based community in the city of Annapolis, Maryland, orienting our lives around Jesus and exists to see the people of our city, region, and world thrive with the hope found in his gospel. Now, please enjoy the sermon podcast. This morning we have the gift of continuing our series, and uh, one of the church planters that we have the gift of partnering with, another dear brother locally here, Isaac Vineyard, who's going to be, who is planting uh, in the Old Fourth Ward, the College Creek Corridor. Not just the Old Fourth Ward, but the whole College Creek Corridor. Um, they launch on the 25th of July, so we're excited about that. Just fully behind you, you guys have been praying for Isaac over the last several. Months Mm -hmm. and um, just excited to have you bring the word. So let's thank God for Isaac and uh, as he teaches us through Deuteronomy. Well, thank you. Good morning. It is good to be with you again um it's always good um to be here and like joey said we're launching in in just a couple of weeks one of the things that many of you prayed about a few weeks ago was that they would the school board would lift their restrictions and allow us to apply um to be in moss adams academy and so praise god they have done that they lifted those restrictions we're very excited about that and i'll just tell you um quickly just a little bit what happened. I found out that they lifted the restrictions at 1.30 in the afternoon on a Thursday. um, And I emailed the principal and I said, can I come down and fill out the paperwork tomorrow? And he said, I don't work on Friday and I'm taking all of next week off but I'm here till three. And so I raced down the road and um, got to meet with him right up until three. And uh, we got all the paperwork done and submitted. And so we are very excited. We're encouraged. We're not a hundred, they haven't called us back about the paperwork yet, but so you can keep praying to that end. But um, it seems like some really good steps in that direction. And we're only three weeks away. So um, we'd really like to have that finalized. So continue to pray um, with us to that end. But Um, I am so excited to share um, from the book of Deuteronomy with you all. Thankful uh, for last week, the way that Joey set us up um, so well last week to think about um, the book of Deuteronomy. If you were here last week, you may remember um, the book of Deuteronomy is Moses's sort of final words to the people of God as they prepare uh, to go into the promised land. So they've come to the border of Canaan again. Um, after about a 40 year detour, almost all of the previous generation has died. There's only a, a handful of adults that are still there who were there the first time to hear um, the law being given. And so they're, they're all, they're this, this previous generation. They're the ones who they didn't just receive the law from God, but they also uh, were the witnesses to work over and over again. They're the ones who saw God deliver them out of Egypt. They're the ones who saw God conquer uh, the Midianites and some of the other cities along the way. But when they came to Canaan, they distrusted God, and because of that distrust of God, um, they weren't allowed in. And so now their children, this 40 years later, their children find themselves in the same situation on the precipice of promise. And, and Moses wants to make sure that they don't make the same failure that their parents did. And so he writes this book. This book of Deuteronomy really recounts sort of three speeches or three sermons that he gives to the people where he reminds them of the faithfulness of God. And then he reminds them of the covenant of God and then of the blessings and curses of God. And so this week, we're going to consider that first speech Moses recounts for them, sort of the wanderings that they do. It's multiple chapters long. So we're not going to read all of those chapters. Um, I'm going to read for us a section from chapter one, and then we'll sort of bounce around through some of the rest of it um, as we consider this together. So if you have your Bibles, Deuteronomy chapter one is where we're going to be. And just a reminder, right, this is Moses retelling the story of of Israel and sort of their wanderings through the wilderness and all the things that have happened. Um, So when he talks a lot and he's talking to the Israelites, um, like you did this and you did this, he's talking actually to the children. They're not the ones who did it, but he sort of lumps them all together. That's what's happening there. Okay, Deuteronomy 1, starting in verse 19. Then we set out from Horeb. And went through all that great and terrifying wilderness that you saw on the way to the hill country of the Amorites, as the Lord our God commanded us. And we came to Kadesh Barnea, and I said to you, you have come to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up and take possession, as the Lord the God of your fathers has told you. Do not fear or be dismayed. And then all of you came near me and said, let us send men before us that they may explore the land for us and bring us word again of the way that we would go up and the cities into which we will come. And the thing seemed good to me. And I took 12 men from you, one man from each tribe, and they turned and went up into the hill country and came to the valley of Eshel and spied it out. And they took in their hands some of the fruit of the land and brought it down to us and brought us word again and said, it is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. Yet you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you murmured in your tents and said, because the Lord hated us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt saying the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. And besides, we've seen the sons of Anakim there. Then I said to you, do not be in dread or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you. And just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. Yet in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God who went before you in the way to seek out a place for you to pitch your tent in fire by night and in the cloud by day to show you what way you should go. And the Lord heard your words and was angered. And he swore, not one of these men of this generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. He shall see it. And to him and his children, I will give the land on which he has trodden, because he has wholly followed the Lord. Even with me, Moses says, the Lord was angry on your account and said, you shall not go in there. The son of none who stands before you, he shall enter. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. And as for your little ones, who you said would become a prey, and your children, who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there. And to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. But as for you, turn and journey into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea. Okay, so Moses here is recounting this really pivotal moment in in the story of the Israelites. It's because of this story, this refusal to go into the land. Um, It's because of that story that we find themselves now facing that same task again. They're again at the border of Canaan. Again, God is telling them to go in and take it. So that story we just read, it's originally given to us um, in Numbers chapter chapter 13. The people of God, just to to sum it up, the people of God are told, hey, go in, take possession of this land that God is giving them, right? So think about what God has said. God says, I'm giving this to you. All you have to do is go in and, and just take possession of the thing that I'm giving to you, right? Verse 21, again, just says, see, the Lord, your God has set the land before you. It's yours. Go up, take possession as the Lord, the God of your fathers has told you, do not fear, do not be dismayed. And the people of Israel respond to this command. They're kind of like, oh, cool, 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 cool. Yeah. Okay. So what if before we go in, we send some spies in and we let the spies like, see what it's like. And then they'll tell us. And so Moses is like, okay, okay, okay. So we send some spies, and the spies come back. And here's what the spies say in verse 25. They say, it is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. It is good, and it is given. And their response is, yet we don't want to go up. You would not go up, Moses says. It is good, and it is given, yet you will not go up. So we actually need Numbers 13, because Numbers 13 actually gives us the context as to why they wouldn't go up. So let me just fill you in with a little bit of context from Numbers chapter 13. We hear there the actual report of the spies, and they do say it's a good land, but they also say it is a dangerous land that the Lord has given you. And so the thing I want you to see here is actually there are two different reports given to them in Numbers 13. So let me just read from Numbers 13, 30 to 31. But Caleb, he's one of the spies, but Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it for we are well able to overcome. And then the men who had gone with him says, so as the rest of the spies, we are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than us. So they're given two different reports, two almost opposite reports are given. And here's the crazy thing. Both Of the reports are true. The Amorites were, in fact, stronger than Israel, and they were not able to contend with them, but with the Lord by their side, they are well able to overcome it. The question was sort of simply is God fighting for them or not? It's the same question that they faced when they fled out of Egypt. I mean, it is certainly impossible for the slave people in Egypt to overthrow the Egyptian army. It's it's impossible even for them to to get out, to escape from Egypt. This is impossible. But with God by their side. So God conquers the Egyptians with plague after plague after plague until they finally say, okay, we'll let you go. And then after doing that, they come after them and they, God defeats them sort of finally and officially at the Red Sea, right? By, by allowing the Israelites a way of escape and then destroying the Egyptian army. And What matters is that God was fighting for them. And actually, this is what we see if we walk through this whole, right, it's multiple chapters long, but as we walk through the whole speech over and over and over again, Moses seems to be saying this, if God is fighting for you, it's all cool. And if he's not, it's not cool. And so let me just, show you how that happens. So Moses is recounting this journey. If you have their Bible, it's going to run through chapters two and three. So they leave Kadesh Barnea and, and they start wandering and they come to the land of Edom. And in the land of Edom, this is what God tells them. So this is chapter two, verse five. God says, do not contend with them for I will not give you any of their land. No, not so much as the sole of the foot to tread on because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession, right? God says, don't fight Fight with them because I will not fight with you. And then he continues, they, they come to the land of Moab, and he says the same thing in verse 9. The Lord says, do not harass Moab or contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land for a possession, because I've given R to Lot for a possession. Okay, in other words, if God's not fighting for you, don't even try it. You're going to lose. All right, but more importantly, what, is, what happens when God does fight for them? We'll continue in chapter 2, verses 31 to 33. He says this, The Lord says to me, Behold, I have begun to give Sihon and his lover you. Begin to take possession that you may occupy his land. So Sihon comes out against us, he and all his people to battle with us at Jahaz. And the Lord our God gave him over to us and we defeated him and his sons and all his people. And then he continues in verse 36, he says, not just all of his people and all of his family. let me be specific. From Aurora to the edge of, which is on the edge of the valley of Arnon and from the city that's in, in the valley, all the way as far as Gilead, there was not a city too high for us. The Lord gave it all into our hands. We just marched through this place and we took it all because the Lord gave it into our hands. And so then they, so they conquer King Sihon and then they turn their attention to a new king. His name is Og, King Og. So this is starting in chapter 3, verse 1. Here's what it says. So we turned And we went up the way to Bashan and Og the king of Bashan came out against us he and all his people to battle at Edri but the Lord said to me do not fear him for I've given him and all his people in his land into your hand And you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, the king of the Amorites who lives at Heshbon. So the Lord our God gave into our hands Og also, the king of Bashan, and all his people. And we struck him down until there was no survivor left. When God fights for them, it is no problem. So then Moses, as we've already read, Moses knows he's not going into the promised land. So Moses turns his attention to Joshua. who's going to lead the people into Canaan, and he says this in chapter 3, verse 21. And I commanded Joshua at this time, Your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings, Sihon and Og. So will the Lord do to all the kingdoms into which you are crossing. You shall not fear them, for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. It is the Lord your God who fights for you. Just just think about that for a minute. It is the Lord your God who fights for you. He says, Don't be afraid of them. Have faith. Move forward. God is fighting for you. Friend, God is fighting for you. Or is He? Actually, is that the takeaway of this text? Is that the right way to do this? To claim for myself the promise that was given um, to Joshua? Is God fighting for, for me? Can I claim that prom- God will fight my battles? Actually, I think that that is a very American, very individualistic interpretation of this. God is fighting for me. No, He's not. God's not fighting for you. God's fighting for himself. God's fighting for his glory. God's fighting for his promises. And he's only fighting for you in as much as you are also fighting for his glory and his promises. And that's not just the case when it comes to your battles, but this is true for Joshua as well. The point that Moses is is making here is not that God will universally join Joshua and Israel in whatever battle they decide that they want to fight. They find this out actually multiple times as they walk through the promised land, when they try to pick a battle that they have been not commanded to fight, or they go into battle with their hearts turned against the Lord. What this passage seems to be saying is God is fighting for himself, and when we join him, God will give us the victory. Right? Think about this passage we just read. What would have happened if they had tried to fight with the Edomites? What would have happened if they had tried to fight with, with the Moabites, right? God very particularly tells them, do, not do that. I will not fight for you there. Because I've given those lands over to Esau and to Lot, right? God is all about fulfilling his promises. And here's what God's promise was to Esau. God said, I'm going to give you Mount Seir, which is going to be called Edom. And to Lot, he says, I'm going to give you a land called Ar, which is going to be called Moab. And he says to Israel, I'm going to give you Canaan. That's your land. And God is all about fulfilling his promises. Because when he fulfills his promises, he receives glory. In the fulfillment of his promises, God receives glory. We actually see this kind of beautifully in in the rest of this story that we started at the beginning. The story of of Israel's refusal to take the land. And we left off at verse 40. At the end of verse 40, God says, okay, wander back towards the Red Sea. Just just start walking. That's what he says. But look, starting in verse 41, at, at what he says. So Deuteronomy 1, pick up in verse 41 says this, then you, that's the people of Israel, answered me, that's Moses, we have sinned against the Lord. We ourselves will go up and fight just as the Lord our God commanded us. And every one of you fastened on his weapon of war and thought it easy to go up into the hill country. And the Lord said, Say to them, Do not go up or fight, for I am not in your midst, lest you be defeated before your enemies. So I spoke to you, and you would not listen, but you rebelled against the command of the Lord, and presumptuously went up into the hill country. And then the Amorites, who lived in that hill country, came out against you, and they chased you as bees do, and beat you down in Sierra as far as Hormah. And you returned. And wept before the Lord, but the Lord did not listen to your voice or give ear to you. So you remained in Kadesh many days, the days that you remained there. You see what happens? God says, hey, go fight the Amorites. It'll be easy. I'm just going to give them to you. This land is yours. I'm just giving it to you. And then they refused. They said, we don't want to go in. And God said, okay, will then wander back towards the Red Sea. That's what I want you to do. And then they're disobedient again. They try to prove their repentance to God by fighting the Amorites on their own. And here's the deal. God's no longer fighting for them. So what happens? It says they get beat down. They get chased like bees out of the land. Israel could have easily beaten this people with God by their side. But without the Lord, died. It proved way too much for them. And it proves the point, right? God doesn't fight for Israel. God doesn't fight for you. God fights for himself. He fights for his own glory and for his own promises. So the question really is, who are you fighting for? What are you fighting for? Whose glory are you after? Whose kingdom are you trying to build? Are you seeking to fulfill your own desires or God's promises? Because if you're fighting for any glory or any kingdom that isn't the kingdom of God and the glory of God, then God does not go with you. And and, and so if I can be so bold, even on the 4th of July to say this, if you're fighting for the glory of America... If you think, hey, America is a, is a Christian nation, so we're fighting to bring it back to that. If you think that in the greatness of or in the glory of America, that that's sort of the goal, hear me. God does not fight with you. Not because God doesn't love America, but because God is not after the glory of America. God is after the glory of his own name. God is after his own greatness, right? If there's ever a nation that was merely chosen by God, it's the Israelites of the Old Testament. And God doesn't even fight for them when they're after their own glory. Let me just show you this one other place in scripture. It's a really good compliment to, to what we're um, talking about here because it's sort of a continuation of that same storyline. So Moses gives these three speeches in Deuteronomy and then he dies, chapter 34, tells us that he dies. And Joshua takes over for him. Joshua's tasked with actually leading the people into Canaan. Joshua's tasked with claiming the promised land that God had given to them. So I just want to read you a couple of verses from Joshua 5. So here's what's happened. Joshua at this point has assumed command. He's in charge. They haven't fought a battle yet. They've crossed the Jordan River, but they've yet to go to battle with Jericho. They've spent some time sort of getting themselves right before God. And then Joshua has this incredible encounter in Joshua 5. It starts in verse 13. It says, When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with a draw sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and he said, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I've come. And Joshua fell on his face and worshiped. See what happens. So Joshua... Joshua and the people of Israel are preparing for war. They're right outside of Jericho. We know the Jericho story, right? Walls come tumbling down. Like, they're right there. They're about to fight that battle. And this guy shows up and he has a sword in his hand. And Joshua, like all of us, is clearly like, this guy's here to fight. Who's he fighting for? And so he goes up and he says, are you for us or for our adversaries? Are you an ally or an enemy? It's the same Sort of question, perhaps, that we ask God a lot of the time. Or we question him, hey, are you, God, are you going to fight for me in this? Are you for me? Or are you against me? And we read this passage like this passage in Deuteronomy, and we want to come away saying, like, God is fighting for me. Is God for me or is God for me? God is fighting for me. Yes! But the commander of the Lord's army tells the truth, which is No. Are you for me or for them? No. Are you with me or with my adversaries? No. I am the commander of the army of Yahweh. God says, you fighting, or we say, God, are you fighting for me or for them? And God says, no, I'm fighting for myself. I'm fighting for my own glory and my own. Who are you fighting for? Whose kingdom, whose glory are you after? Right, that's the central question that we're faced with in this passage this morning. we got to be asking ourselves that question all the time. Whose kingdom, whose glory am I after when I make this decision? Whose kingdom am I building? When I choose to do this, whose glory am I pursuing? Right, but here's the thing. Living your life all about the glory of God is hard. And it's hard because everything around you is telling you not to do that. Everything around you is saying, fight for your own glory. Build your own kingdom. And if you're not going to do that, at least join us and fight for our kingdom together. Right? Even even the church does this. Even Christians do this. They want you to stake your claim with them and fight for the glory of the church or, or the glory of Christians. But hear me, the glory of the church or of Christians apart from the glory of God is opposed to the glory of God. The call on our lives is to be consumed with the glory of God, but that is hard. So let me just give us three words of encouragement consider this call to sort of orient our lives around God's glory. First, God graciously provides for his people even when they're unfaithful. God graciously provides for his people even when they're unfaithful. God is faithful even when we aren't. The people of God refuse to enter into the land and God sends them wandering for 40 years, yet each step of those 40 years he provided for them. Food, water, later in Deuteronomy, they're reminded that their clothes, even their shoes, didn't wear out for 40 years. I'm trying to do that. Even their shoes did not wear out for 40 years. Why? Because of God's provision for them. Right? Even in the passage that we read earlier, verse 31, it says that God carried them like he like a man carries his son all the way that you went. And then again in chapter 2, verse 7, it says this, "The Lord your God has blessed you in the work of your hands. He knows you're going through this great wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing." God provides for his people. So be encouraged today as you think about what it would look like to orient your life entirely around God. Be encouraged that God is gracious and he provides for his people. That provision may not look like what you wanted it to look like or what you expected it to look like, but God graciously provides for the needs of his people. Second word of encouragement is this. You don't have to be afraid to do what God tells you to. You don't have to be afraid to do what God tells you to do. It is true that God does not necessarily fight for you. He fights for himself. But what that means is that if you are also fighting for him, if you are also fighting for his glory and his kingdom, then he definitely fights with you. You don't have to be afraid. When God calls you to share the gospel with someone, you don't have to be afraid because God goes with you. You don't have to be afraid when God says, hey, it's time for you to finally let go of that sin that you find comforting because God fights with you. You don't have to fear when God calls you to sacrifice your finances for His glory. You don't have to be afraid when God asks you to move to a neighborhood that's maybe less safe for His glory. Or God says, hey, it's time for you to quit your job for my glory. Or hey, it's time for you to move to the other side of the world for my glory. If it's for His glory, you need not fear for the Lord our God goes before you. Third word of encouragement to us this morning, this passage is this, God always keeps his promises, and we've seen it repeatedly here. God keeps his promise. He kept his promises to Esau and to Lot. He kept his promise to to Israel as well. Why? Because in the fulfillment of his promises, he receives glory. You can trust him. So we just have to ask, what are his promises? And there, there are so many, so let me just give you a few. He promises that he will never leave you nor forsake you. He promises that no temptation will come to you without a way of escape provided. He promises that when you confess your sins, he will forgive them. He promises that all who trust in Christ will not perish but have eternal life. He promises that He will go with us in the work of disciple making until the very end of the age. He promises that all who come to Him will find rest and peace in Him, and God keeps His promises. So we come then, sort of again, right, just back to the central question Whose kingdom? Whose glory are you after? There's not a doubt in my mind that God is after his kingdom. God is after his glory. Whose kingdom am I after? Whose glory am I pursuing? It's scary. It's a scary call to orient your life entirely around the kingdom and the glory of God. But when you do, know this, God graciously provides for you and he fights for you and he always keeps his promises let's pray father you are you are rightly father you are rightly consumed by your own glory so lord we just we reflect that back to you, Lord. We just, we give you praise, Lord, because you are the creator of all things. Lord, you are the sustainer of all things. In, Lord, it is only in you that things would find their salvation. You are the one who provides salvation for all things. It is right that you would receive all glory. And yet, Lord, in, in your kindness, in your kindness, Lord, you have connected your glory to our good. Lord, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for connecting your glory to our salvation. Thank you, Lord, for connecting your glory to our provision. You are so kind to us. I thank you for allowing us to join you in the work of kingdom building. So Lord, we ask today, Lord, as you have taught us to ask, so we ask that your kingdom would come, Lord, that your will would be done on earth, here, here in our city, and Lord, even in our own hearts, as it is in heaven. In Christ's name, amen. amen.